Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is August the 10th, 2016. In this podcast, I interview Dr. Will Burns on the laws and damage provisions, or the lack thereof, of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Will Burns is the co-executive director of the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment in the School of International Service at American University. He formerly directed the Energy Policy and Climate Program at Johns Hopkins University and is the immediate past president of the Association of Environmental Studies and Sciences. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I'm an associate professor of law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. I research and write on public international law with a particular focus on climate change and its financial implications. Good morning, Will. Good morning. Could you tell the readers what loss and damage stands for in the context of public international law and climate change? What is that term? Yes. Uh, so loss and damage uh, in a general sense refers to residual impacts of climate change that can't be effectively addressed either by mitigation efforts, i.e. efforts to reduce emissions or, or enhance sinks, or adaptation. And so one of the things that we know is that given our projection of greenhouse gas emissions and given the inertia of the system, uh, there's a, a certain amount of temperature increases that are now baked into the system, as it were. And, um, and those are likely to, to rise to levels that are going to have serious impacts no matter what we do and no matter how aggressive our mitigation efforts are. And on the adaptation side, we're increasingly learning that there's, there's only so much we can adapt to, especially as we start passing critical thresholds. And also some adaptation is not cost beneficial and some adaptation can actually be maladaptive, i.e., efforts to build seawalls, for example, in some regions may ultimately result in coastal erosion that exacerbates uh, impacts. And then when we look at loss and damage and we disaggregate them, uh, we refer to damage as impacts that are potentially reversible and loss as, uh, as irreversible uh, impacts. And so the thinking is that uh, these terms and this concept is going to uh, translate into millions, if not billions of dollars of, of actual physical or actual financial losses for different nations. Is that right? Yeah, actually, when we look at, um, at impacts over the course of a couple of centuries, there's been recent research that's indicated that between 2000 and 2200, it could translate into about 275 trillion trillion even dollars right about two-thirds of all of the the likely damages associated with climate change may be associated with the this concept of loss and damage and it's my impression uh, just sort of looking at it a little bit from the outside that that largely gets forgotten about in the current debate about climate change is that your impression too that you know we still talk about you know avoiding the problem and adaptation but that there's not at least seeing it from the outside, too, too much focus yet on the actual losses, unless you're, you know, working in our fields as law professors or whatever. What, uh, what is your impression about how much the general public knows about this? Yeah, I, I think the general public uh, knows virtually nothing about this. This has really been inside baseball, even though, you know, as I think we'll probably talk about, there's been efforts inside 
of the the framework convention and then the the new Paris agreement to um, to specifically address this issue uh, it's one that's largely flown under the radar screen of the general public and even when you saw analyses of the of the Paris agreement for example in my opinion uh, you know a topic that may encompass you know two-thirds of all of the impacts of climate change were, were given uh, short shrift by most of the the analysts that's amazing. And has it been like that historically, too, in the COP context? I know that you've written about uh, uh, historical efforts to address this issue. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, there were uh, in 1991, during the uh, negotiations for the Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, the Alliance of Small Island States, which for obvious reasons was concerned about uh, uh, serious impacts, uh, especially impacts that couldn't be reversed. And that was certainly uh, the case then and certainly even more so now when it comes to vulnerable island states. Uh, they were concerned about this issue. And so they didn't use the term loss and damage, but what they called for was the establishment of an of an insurance pool to uh, assist uh, these small island states to cope with the impacts of, of sea levels. And so the idea was there were inevitable damages and that uh, insurance pools were a, a risk management uh, method to to address that issue, but uh, uh, that proposal wasn't wasn't picked up in the text. And then, in uh, at the thirteenth conference of the parties, though in in uh, in Bali, as part of the Bali Plan of Action, uh, there uh, was. Uh, uh, a call for uh, risk management, risk reduction strategies, including insurance uh, and uh, disaster reduction strategies to address for the first time using the term loss and damage associated with climate impacts. And then uh, there were negotiations that uh, ensued uh, over the next couple of conference of the parties and ultimately at the uh, 19th conference of the parties, uh, the uh, the parties adopted uh, the uh, the Warsaw mechanism uh, on uh, uh, for loss and damage, and uh, and that was uh, the first time that uh, a formal mechanism was incorporated into the uh, into the framework convention. And that's also the one that still forms part of the regime currently. Correct. That's correct. It was uh, when uh, when the Paris Agreement was being negotiated, uh, uh, some of the developing countries. Uh, uh, considered this to be a make-or-break issue for them, and th some of them wanted the loss and damage mechanism to be uh, uh, an independent, um, standalone mechanism inside of Paris. Uh, developing countries, developed countries, uh, uh, largely resisted that. Some didn't want loss and damage referred to at all <laughs> in the agreement, uh, and the uh, grand compromise was that uh, the loss and damage was incorporated as Article 8 of the Paris Agreement, but it, um, it, uh, uh, it incorporated the Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage inside the Paris Agreement with the uh, understanding that it would be subject to review and potential enhancement in the future in terms of its provisions. And could you talk uh, a little bit about um, and explain to the readers what the difference is between uh, what it does say in the Paris Agreement, where it clearly states that there is, quote, no basis for any liability and compensation, and then uh, yet uh, it also mentions the Warsaw International Mechanism, as you talked about. Can you explain what the difference between those concepts um, is? Yeah. So 
very very radically different um, uh, perspectives on what uh, loss and damage should should entail inside these mechanisms. Many uh, developing countries. Uh, wanted uh, potential liability for for these impacts, and uh, uh, this goes back to the you know issues of justice and equity that uh, that that ensue between the north and the south on a regular basis. And they argued that to the extent that uh, developed countries were visiting these huge uh, potential losses and damages on developing countries, there should be a provision for uh, for liability and and state responsibility in the in the in the longer term. Uh, that was uh, vociferously opposed by most developed countries. In fact, um, uh, John Kerry, as the negotiator for the United States of the Paris Agreement, made it clear that uh, that that would be a uh, a make or break issue, and the United States, if it were incorporated, would have to walk away from Paris. And so, uh, ultimately, uh, the parties agreed expressly inside of the Paris Agreement that there would not be. Uh, a provision for liability or or compensation, and so instead, what they did is they they picked up the language first of all of the uh, Warsaw Mechanism that talks about um, seeking to enhance uh, knowledge and understanding of risk management approaches that can reduce potentially reduce loss and damage uh, to strengthen uh, communication and and synergies between stakeholders and to quote unquote enhance action and support and vaguely talk about you know finance technology and capacity building but without in the context of uh, technology transfer of finance uh, any specific dedicated mechanisms to uh, to then uh, ensure that and then under article um, uh, 8 of the uh, of the agreement uh, they talk about uh, beyond kind of these uh, these general uh, things, they talk about some of the specific sort of things uh, that should be looked at in the in the future, such as you know uh, further developing um, in potentially developing insurance mechanisms, uh, figuring out how to address what's called slow onset events. Um, as you know, with climate, we have rapid onset events associated with climate change, such as uh, uh, floods, and then we have slow onset events such as melting of of uh, glaciers or uh, long-term desertification. And so most of the losses and damages we anticipate uh, in the longer term will be these slow onset events. And so there's a mechanism to, you know, at least research uh, those, uh, those impacts. Uh, but uh, it's, it's very much at this point a, a, a procedural mechanism as opposed to one that would have had a, a substantive potential trigger for, for liability. And I was just about to say that that when you mention words such as knowledge enhancement and synergies, risk management and so forth, that doesn't sound like it has a lot of, of real teeth. And so that's indeed what you just said right now, that 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 unfortunately uh, does seem to be the case. Yeah, that was the, that was just the uh, political reality. I mean, uh, a lot of developing countries uh, it, it, toward the end of these negotiations, obviously, uh, as was true with developed countries, didn't want to see Paris uh, collapse. And and so this was one of those cases where it was a question really of who was going to blink first mm -hmm. and uh, uh, developing countries uh, uh, blinked in terms of liability, uh, mm -hmm. though that that probably was never really 
uh, in the cards. I think even even if a liability mechanism had been adopted, of course, you you'd have to develop all kinds of protocols in terms of where the venues would be and and um, and questions of causation, et cetera. But uh, uh, we didn't even get there. Right. They weren't willing to do that. You mentioned concepts such as justice and equity um, as well. And I'm just uh, thinking, and I know you probably can't answer this this somewhat rhetorical question, but if you were to speculate uh, about this issue, then why do you think it is that uh, developing nations res- to such an extent resist paying some compensation for the loss and damage given the historically great contributions to the problem caused by these very same nations? That's <laughs> not very fair, is it? No, but, you know, as we know, and, and, and throughout history, um, as as we see countries, you know, in, 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 uh, ho- engage in wholesale uh, seizure of lands from other countries or wholesale seizures of lands from people within countries, uh, as we see them wage wars to um, uh, uh, to seize assets, um, it, we know that the international stage is not fair. And uh, negotiations of this sort may use that language, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, most of these countries have very powerful domestic constituencies, right, who mm-hmm. believe that the most important thing is protecting um, uh, public economies in those countries. And so um, uh, it's very difficult to, mm-hmm. uh, to to extract those kind of concessions. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Paris was, especially for the United States, Paris was so difficult anyway, obviously, because uh, the administration was trying to figure out a way to enter into an agreement that wouldn't require congressional ratification if they had agreed to a provision that would have opened up the United States to potentially, you know, tens of trillions of dollars of liability. By definition, it would have had to been take to Congress and then it would have been dead on arrival. So it's it's a political calculus, unfortunate though it may have been. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it seems like that was the case. So this me first attitude sort of, um, came into play here but what if nations uh developing nations including as you mentioned the united states were to adapt some financial responsiveness at some point in time what do you think about the slice of the pie problem how would uh, any kind of damages be apportioned to each nation yes well that would be that would be an incredibly difficult question i mean i think if you established a liability regime and uh, if you had, if you decided that there was going to be a limited pool, for example, and so liability would not be unlimited in scope, uh, then you'd have to figure out some formula for apportioning uh, liability based on, um, you know, the magnitude of damages or uh, percentage of GDP lost, et cetera, and and apply that formula. If you had a an unlimited regime, of course, uh, you might look at the actual damages in each country, but realistically, um, uh, that kind of uh, compensation is not going to be provided. So right. there's there's also um, there's also been some discussions of of how we might craft a uh, a regime that uh, could provide compensation, but perhaps as a sop to developed countries would take the concept of of liability um, off the uh, off the table. And so, uh, uh, for example, uh, one of the things that you could possibly do instead uh, is establish some kind of uh, of pool. Uh, mm-hmm. And you could establish a pool 
that uh, uh, that provided credits, for example, against uh, one's con con contributions to pool based on mitigation or adaptation efforts that are taken by that state. And you could uh, stipulate at the outset that this pool uh, did not entail uh, liability, which in itself obviously is a red flag. Nobody mm -hmm. wants to be held liable, whereas countries may say, well, we're providing assistance and that would make it uh, more uh, politically palatable. And so there are um, other uh, mechanisms, and you, you see these mechanisms in, in the context of, uh, of other pollution regimes, mm -hmm. right? In a nuclear regime, uh, oil pollution regime, et cetera, that uh, uh, would, would provide a, perhaps a, a system that would have some um, equi equitable metrics for assessing uh, uh, impacts without uh, liability being an issue. Talk about that a little bit, if you will. How do they uh, apportion potential liability within those regimes? Well, the, each one of them has their own uh, uh, mechanism. They're in some ways uh, analogous in the sense that you could establish uh, a, a pool and then allocate from it. But they're fortunate in some ways in that most of the events that occur in that context are discrete Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, easily uh, identifiable in terms of who the uh, uh, who the party was that caused it and who was uh, who was damaged, um, and relatively limited in scope. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the difficulties that you have in this case, of course, is if you're talking about climate liability, is it occurring everywhere, um, having uh, in in theory every country of the world uh, responsible to some degree, mm -hmm. right? Right. Uh, right? And so it's a uh, it's a much more uh, much more complicated uh, 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 mechanism. Um, at the end of the day, um, it, it might argue in favor of establishing a pool, uh, then having a uh, a commission or a committee uh, that would uh, accept uh, 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 proposals, as it were, from countries for for allocations from this, as as you do, for example now with uh, the Green Climate Fund in terms mm -hmm. of adaptation mm -hmm. and pr providing that uh, that funding. But, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, the devil would be in the details. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. And I can't help thinking as well whether uh, this issue might be made deliberately a little more complex than what it might be. Um, I'm thinking if you were to apportion uh, liability, wouldn't it maybe just be something as simple as uh, uh, doing that on the basis of historical contributions? Is there fogging going on here that they say that's not fair or that's not reasonable? And if so, why wouldn't that be you know, just a fair method of solving this problem since we don't really have anything better? After all, we all contributed to the problem. Each and every nation did you know, in a certain amount, and that is figure out about what that amount was. Yeah, um, I think that that would certainly make some sense. Uh, you would get the same arguments that you always do from uh, from uh, developed countries that uh, that what what would be more fair, quote unquote, is to look at current contributions. The argument being that uh, it, the the contributions of many developed countries in uh, the, at the turn of the last century, for example, even up until the fifties and the sixties arguably occurred in a context in which we didn't really understand the the implications of those emissions whereas the the very large contributions now of countries such as Brazil and China 
et cetera, are occurring at a time when, when, when we're highly cognizant of the potential impacts of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And so they would argue, I think, and you know, this is largely based, again, on, on protecting uh, domestic political interests, that uh, the formula should also acknowledge uh, uh, current emissions, and that perhaps it's a it's a hybrid between the two, as well as maybe capabilities in terms of looking at uh, uh, gross domestic product. And so, um, it 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 would be a it would be a political hot potato. Um, there'd be uh, interesting equity issues uh, all around, mm-hmm. uh, and you you might ultimately end up with some kind of hybrid, as as we were talking about. Um, you know, prior to Paris, right, when we were still talking about uh, top-down uh, sort of solutions, right, we had all kinds of proposals mm-hmm. uh, from GCI and others of establishing these kind of equitable formulas for uh, allocating, uh, you know, the carbon budget. And so you might, you'd have, the, I think, the similar sort of formulations in terms of allocating um, uh, damages in this context. Right, it sure sounds like it, but as you said, maybe some sort of a, a hybrid model or something. Ideally, could be uh, agreed upon, but uh, maybe one day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hopefully. Another issue is that I noticed again that you talk a little bit, or actually quite a bit, uh, about the different knowledge about these things, and and again you mentioned the knowledge that has surfaced recently about the historical contributions and so forth. Uh, so now I think also uh, a big part of this problem is the knowledge about the loss and damage that uh, that will come about in the future. Yet at the same time, uh, many psychologists have demonstrated human beings I- either inability to or unwillingness to accurately uh, predict or think about the future. So what do you think about the focus on knowledge uh, in this context and in the Paris Agreement? Does it really truly help given people's reluctance unwillingness or inability to correctly relate to future financial scenarios. Right. Well, I think it would be extremely difficult to get the uh, the general public to uh, uh, to acknowledge this. I think largely what what one would have to hope would happen is that this was uh, a technocratically uh, uh, science uh, driven uh, mm-hmm. process and that uh, politicians would accept uh, to some degree uh, uh, the the findings, and right. so uh, it, even even people engaged in in risk assessment, for example, uh, given uh, both the the limits that we have of 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 climate modeling, uh, given the uh, difficulty of of disaggregating uh, some of these impacts from both natural variability and other potential causative factors, uh, it's always going to be. Um, uh, uh, highly speculative, right? You're going to have a large range in terms of uh, estimating loss and damage, as you do in terms of uh, uh, impacts that uh, that could be adapted to, or or just general climactic impacts. And so uh, uh, that would uh, that's always going to be um, uh, a contested thing. And then the, the question becomes, uh, even under conditions of high uncertainty. Does it mean we don't act, uh, uh, or if we do act, um, what kind of tenable formulas can we establish that are uh, uh, recognized as legitimate under high conditions of uncertainty? But uh, that that would be difficult, and there there'd be political forces that would be trying to resist um, any any you know sense of of compensation in this context that would certainly uh, raise those questions and. Uh, 
and probably lead to you know substantial uh, public resistance to mm-hmm. to this in the longer term. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like from what you're saying that the uh, the the players and the actual negotiation fields, the politicians, the top level uh, diplomats, they do at least have the awareness of this issue. They do have they have the awareness of this issue. The uh, the research is becoming more sophisticated. Um, you know, one benefit of having this Warsaw mechanism is is that you have um, uh, uh, dedicated personnel now, and you have a mechanism for uh, countries that are engaged in this research to um, uh, to uh, provide that research uh, to to start to talk about best practices. Uh, we are now developing enhanced uh, understanding and and will uh, continue to and the. Uh, a uh, Warsaw mechanism provides for a work plan uh, and uh, and the development of, of future work plans based on 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 what we've learned and where we start to believe that it's best to concentrate resources to address these issues. Great. And in the meantime, it sounds like maybe some private solutions would also be called for uh, until the government may or may not step up to the plate in this context. You've, in your writings, mentioned micro-insurance programs. Could you talk a little bit about what uh, what those are and how they would work here? Yeah, so uh, in the last 20 years or so, there's been increasing discussion of, of the possible use of micro-insurance, both as an adaptation mechanism and as a mechanism to address loss and damage in terms of, of uh, pooling risks and uh, and potentially reducing uh, uh, risks associated with uh, with climate change and the idea behind microinsurance is that uh, for a uh, a very modest uh, premium uh, we provide insurance against uh, climate related losses and uh, there's been a, a number of countries that have developed uh, either uh, uh, pilot projects or or larger projects, including areas such as the Caribbean, uh, uh, India, uh, some African countries, uh, to to utilize microinsurance in the context of crop loss, for example, associated with climate change. And uh, the idea is is that if uh, if we if uh, we have insurance in place and one of these disasters occur, uh, those that are vulnerable uh, have some resiliency uh, uh, built into their into their lives um, if uh, if one is compensated for uh, for these losses for example one does not respond in a way that makes uh, one even more vulnerable to to the next um, potential uh, onslaught by climate change for example one of the things that we've seen happen over the years is if a farmer uh, is hit by a, a, a drought uh, often what they'll do, to compensate is they'll they'll sell cattle right mm-hmm. to provide capital for food mm-hmm. or they will um, require their children that are getting an education to come back to work on the farm uh, in the longer term uh, that is uh, uh, that's that's maladaptive right because it ensures mm-hmm. the next time this happens uh, farmers don't have the resources to be able to recover as quickly or in the long longer term the fact that you've taken kids out of the education system means that their futures are far right. uh, far less propitious than they would have been and so um, uh, microinsurance provides a way 
of, uh, of building more resilience into the system. Uh, at the same time, uh, there's lots of questions associated with its, um, its potential uh, effectiveness. Uh, one of the questions is a so-called moral hazard. If people have insurance, as is true with all of us, are they less likely to take um, precautionary measures to, to not uh, be uh, impacted by, by these kind of things? Uh, uh, it, uh, from an actuarial perspective, given the fact that uh, that uh, individual stakeholders may have more knowledge uh, than than those providing the insurance. Uh, can you can you structure it in a way that uh, that that the risks are are such that a, that a profit can be derived from the insurance? And um, uh, questions of causation: How do you determine? Uh, do you do it on an individual basis, or do you do it uh, uh, more? on the basis of an event occurring in terms of providing compensation when a drought occurs and and ascribing it to climate change. And then in the longer term, can microinsurance be utilized for slow onset events? Uh, if we know that sea level is going to continue to rise in an area, for example, and create increasing uh, damages associated with flooding or or drought is going to become more serious or desertification in an area, from an actuarial perspective, can insurance companies actually make a, a profit uh, in the long term from that insurance? Or do they have to raise premiums to such a degree uh, that they're cost prohibitive and so the system is not viable? Um, these are all questions uh, that are being grappled with in many of these uh, pilot projects and um, and will have to continue to be. And one of the things that, that I've argued is that uh, uh, microinsurance is, is potentially an effective risk mechanism uh, to, in the context of loss and damage, and we should be uh, expanding the, uh, 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 the scope and the variety of these kind of insurance proposals uh, around the world to see um, what works and, and, and what doesn't work, and also to determine uh, uh, who would potentially pay for these, uh, these mechanisms, because even modest premiums are going to be uh, prohibitive for some, and this might be a way uh, to again provide uh, uh, compensation and assistance that would not entail liability, but potentially could get us a lot of bang for our buck. And so, it, it's certainly worth uh, uh, exploring further. That's interesting. Uh, but the programs, these microinsurance programs, you envision them still being run by private insurance companies, or do you think there might be some? Uh, interaction between governments and some quasi-governmental oversight in this area, or yeah. or what do you think about the yeah. management? Yeah, there there's there's all kinds of formulas. In most cases, uh, as is true with any insurance, you you still have to have government uh, oversight and regulation, right, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. avoid sharp practices, etc. Um, in a lot of cases. Uh, you have governments uh, subsidizing these insurances, uh, insurance mechanisms in, in countries. Uh, and in some cases, you have the actual government uh, providing the insurance, much as you do with flood insurance, for example, in the United States. So uh, there are a, a variety of, of, of formulas. Um, and that's something, again, from a standpoint of trialing, I think we need to look at to see what, uh, uh, what, what works and what the, the, uh, the optimal uh, mix might be in the longer term. 
And what do you think uh, the time horizon for this might be? Because isn't it true that in, in many countries developing or developed, there might very well be severe damage soon? So how long would it take for information about these potential pilot programs to, to spread out into the areas where people are the most vulnerable financially? Yeah, it's. I'd say that uh, it, it, definitely time is of the essence in terms of a lot of these impacts as we as we now know, we we're we're past one degree Celsius, mm -hmm. and uh, and there's a lot of estimates that uh, uh, that or projections that we could pass two right by 2040 or 2050, and uh, in the interim, right uh, impacts will continue to grow. Uh, so I think probably in the next five years or so, it would be uh, uh, highly beneficial to really. Uh, uh, escalate the the trialing of these mechanisms, and the and the good news is that the uh, uh, the Warsaw provisions uh, that are now adopted in Paris uh, uh, expressly talk about um, looking at the the role of of insurance mechanisms, and uh, um, you know there's other insurance mechanisms besides micro insurance that might uh, play a role, but uh, that's one that we probably should be um, uh, increasing research for. So where do you see the the road forward? The next COP meets in uh, Marrakesh in just a few months from now. What uh, what's the next step here? Right. Well, it's 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 unclear. The uh, one of the things that's supposed to happen in Marrakesh is that the um, uh, uh, the the committee that oversees the Warsaw mechanism will report. Uh, there uh, is supposed to be discussion on how potentially to enhance. Uh, uh, the role of the mechanism, and um, uh, one of the things that that I've talked about in the context of of uh, loss and damage are a set of suggestions of what uh, might be done in this context. Uh, we've talked about a couple of them. I think mm -hmm. at some time, perhaps not now, because I don't think it'd be politically propitious after having uh, agreed um, uh, in the last couple of years to take liability off the table. But in the longer term, there should be some discussion of if not liability, uh, some kind of uh, compensatory pool uh, for loss and damage. And that's something that we could initially start discussing in terms of how we might uh, enhance uh, uh, Warsaw, as the, as the language in Paris says. Um, I think a, a, a major issue that needs to be discussed is uh, is the question of climate refugees. Um, mm -hmm. This is this is likely to be one of the most serious uh, loss and damage uh, uh, impacts uh, associated with sea level rise, extreme weather events, drought. Um, and it's been estimated that uh, the, the number of climate refugees, and again, I'd, I'd caution that this is an extremely speculative number. It's based on how you classify them, you know, issues of causality again. But um, there's been estimates that the number of climate refugees could uh, increase to as as many as 200 million or more by 2050. And to put this in perspective, that'd be 20 times those that are protected by the uh, high, UN High Commissioner for Refugees currently. And one of the questions is uh, is under uh, under the Warsaw mechanism, uh, how might we address that issue? And uh, during the negotiations for uh, uh, for for Paris. Uh, there were proposals for uh, establishing a climate displacement facility, for example, uh, that um, would have uh, provided for 
uh, potentially allocating refugees based again on some kind of formula, um, uh, providing funding to help countries uh, 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 with internally displaced uh, people, uh, etc. That ultimately wasn't adopted, and, and instead they uh, adopted a provision for further research, right? And so one of the things I've suggested is that we need to really start addressing that issue and, and look at things such as formulas for accepting uh, displaced persons associated with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, climate change, uh, uh, develop a proposal for international uh, recognition of climate refugees, uh, the 1951 Convention for, for the, uh, on the Status of Refugees and its protocol uh, don't uh, uh, provide for, uh, for refugee status for people uh, facing environmental disasters, right? It talks about people that are fleeing persecution. Right. Uh, right. Uh, the, some of the regional refugee conventions do, and uh, those might be good models. And mm -hmm. we need to acknowledge the, the fact that this is another uh, category of refugees that should be accorded the kind of protections that are provided under the treaty uh, and, uh, and would provide us with a an orderly and equitable way to uh, to address this issue in the long term. So um, I think they need to be doing uh, that. They need to be looking again at, at micro insurance. Uh, and uh, also, I think the one final thing is that Paris provides for stock taking, right, in terms of uh, uh, the impacts of mitigation and adaptation efforts. Uh, it notably doesn't provide for us to stock take on how we're doing in terms of loss and damage. Uh, that's something that uh, the parties should accept, I think, at least through resolution and uh, uh, make that part of the regular stock taking process so we can determine if this research that we're engaged in, uh, the stakeholder dialogue, et cetera, is actually uh, uh, providing some kind of meaningful responses. And that's interesting that you mentioned that. Do you think that was a deliberate omission from the text or, or why did that seem to go missing? I doubt if it was deliberate. Uh, I suspect that, um, you know, there were so many moving pieces in the context of, of Paris, right? And, mm -hmm. and a lot of these things, as you knew, came, came down to the, to the wire, literally, right, mm -hmm. in terms of the language. Um, I think it's probably just something that was, uh, was overlooked. Um, and, and as a consequence, I think it, it would be politically viable to, uh, to revisit that issue. But uh, I think the stock-taking provision of Paris is, is an innovative and salutary provision, and it certainly should, uh, should be extended to, uh, to loss of damage. We want to know that, that the efforts that we're taking are, are effective, and we want to be able to uh, respond in cases where, uh, where we need to do more. And as you mentioned, also because of equitable reasons um, and not just because of our, our own potential financial losses. Yeah. And, and you know, those equitable, uh, those equitable rationale extend both ways, right? If, mm -hmm. if in the long term, 70 or 80 percent of your greenhouse gas emissions are from developing countries, uh, it is critical for them to recognize the regime that you're crafting as, as morally legitimate. And... Uh, to to engender more cooperation on their part, because right. uh, and so uh, if you if you div if you tell them that uh, that you know the damages that are potentially is, uh, 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 constitute two thirds of all that's going to happen are really off the table, 
it's it's going to be much harder to engender that kind of cooperation. So I think it's both just and politically pragmatic to uh, to address uh, the, the elephant in the room, as it were. As it needs to be to to reach the ultimate solution, which hopefully will be uh, severe limitations of, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Yeah, but we're all in it together, but we're all really going to only be in it together in terms of cooperating if everybody views the system as, as just and, and, and legitimate. And so that, that, that has to remain the touchstone, in my opinion. Yep, sounds right. Hopefully they'll get to that point. Will, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Mayanna. Thank you for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. In this podcast, I interviewed Dr. Will Burns, the co-executive director of the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment in the School of International Service at American University.